gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We have a very exciting first-time guest uh, today on uh, the Remnant. He is, gosh, uh, I'm going to do give short shrift to his bio uh, because it's such a impressive bio. Former West Point military uh, instructor, professor, whatever on the faculty. Former. Uh, held many high-ranking positions in the U.S. military, author of a seminal book, Dereliction of Duty, which is still widely read and assigned in military service academies, a national security advisor under the, in the Trump administration. Um, I'm, of course, referring to H.R. McMaster. He is also, I promised my friend Scott Emmergood I would mention these things, he is the co-host with Neil Ferguson, another longtime Remnant fan favorite, uh, John Cochran and Bill Whalen of an uh, of online show called Goodfellows um, for the Hoover Institution. And his most recent book is called uh, Battlegrounds. And it is also the title of another YouTube or online show that he does for the Hoover Institute called Battlegrounds. So with all of that and so many other things, um, you know, we'll put his full bio in the show notes. Um, I'd like to welcome H.R. McMaster to the show. General, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Joan, it's great to be with you. I love, love your podcast. Real privilege to be with you. Oh, well, the privilege is all mine. Um, we'll get you the best doctors. Nice of you to say. So, <laughs> um, I, you know, uh, I know you have, you have views about, like, ethical leadership and, and all that. So I'm kind of tempted. We're recording this on Tuesday morning. Last night, the Supreme Court leaked this thing, leaked an early opinion, if you have views on that, I'd be kind of curious about it. But otherwise, we'll, we can just jump right into the the military stuff. Um, I mean, how do you feel about American institutions generally? I guess what I could say about that is, you know, I I think you can go back to to you know to Stoic philosophy, right? Understand who you are and what your role is. And somebody who leaks a document like that doesn't understand their role, right? Their their role is to be a staff member to support. Uh, one of the branches of our government, branches that were set up quite deliberately by the founders uh, to 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 affect separation of powers and to have checks and balances in place. And, and we have that, actually, in our constitutional form of government, and we ought to protect it, not undermine it. The person who leaked that thinks it's their job to render an opinion and to influence policy and decisions and to to judge the constitutionality uh, of of uh, you know of the issue at hand. So I, I think that this is this is a breach of trust. Uh, and it's someone who whoever leaked it is actually undermining the Constitution of the United States. Yeah, and and as there'll be plenty of room for punditry about all this later, but I also think like it was probably a massive strategic miscalculation because it will not have probably the effect the leaker wanted to have. But speaking of strategic miscalculations, how big a blunder has Putin made invading Ukraine just on his own terms? Oh, it's it's an absolute blunder, and 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 the reason is, you know, he he embarked on this invasion, this this brutal invasion of of Ukraine, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, based on four assumptions that turned out to be completely false. Right? Assumption one was that you know, Ukrainians would just fold; they didn't have the will to defend themselves. They weren't even really a a country with any kind of national identity. Remember, he published that six thousand word essay last summer. You know, under his signature. You know that. Um, 
you know, that Ukraine is, 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 doesn't even have an idea of national identity and they really just want to be part of Russia. Uh, of course, you know, of course that didn't happen. And I think he, he undervalued Zelensky's leadership as well. He probably looked at him. Remember, Putin's a guy who likes to ride around shirtless on horseback. He probably looked at Zelensky, thought, oh, this guy's like, this guy's an actor. He's a comedian. He's, he's a ballroom dancer. You know, I can take him. Uh, and then the, the second, the second assumption was that the Ukrainian military would just fold. I think he had in mind the Ukrainian military of 2014 that was utterly unprepared. And and there have been some significant improvements in their fighting power, and especially in their will, right? Their, their will to fight, which was a big differential between Russian and, and, and uh, Ukrainian forces. And that's the third element. He thought that the Russian military had the prowess, right, to to be able to rapidly dominate Ukraine, to to collapse the government, to take Kiev and Odessa, uh, and, and then establish control over the whole country. Well, that turns out to be a, absolutely a, a, a miscalculation because Russian military, like other institutions in Russia, is corrupt. It's inept. It can't fight effectively and, and conduct what we call com, you know, combined arms operations. And and then you know and and then finally, he assumed he was going to get disunity from the West, you know, from the free world, and and he got a lot more unity than he bargained for. There's still differences. I think there's still some laggards, you know, in terms of. You know, Hungary, for example, or now Slovakia in the area of, or, and Germany in the area of, of, of uh, sanctions on, on, on Russian hydrocarbon exports. Uh, but, but he thought we were, we were hopelessly divided in the United States, that France was hopelessly divided as the French election approached, that Germany who had this weak coalition government with the, uh, with, you know, with the, uh, this, the SPD party back into place, which had been, has a long history of supplicating to the Russians. You saw Boris Johnson was under fire for, you know, having parties in number 10 Downing Street. So I, I think he just thought he was going to get, you know, a, a really tepid reaction like he did in 2014, where he got a very weak reaction from the West when he first invaded Ukraine. But can't you make the case that given how weak our reaction was in 2014 and given how we responded to the red line in Syria and you can go down a long list, including, you know, President Trump's own rhetoric about NATO. And can't you make the case that he had a reasonable expectation right i mean that that yeah. that weakness i mean i think you'd agree that projecting weakness and indecision and disunity is provocative and nato isn't to blame I, i'm not buying the putin line about nato being to blame but our own indecision and weakness in the west invites these kinds of adventures no absolutely jonah and this is where people get it wrong right they think that hey providing weapons to ukraine is provocative and this was a uh, the argument that I made to, to President Trump, I gave him options on on javelin missiles. This is an, and defensive capabilities broadly in 2017, and of course, option one was continue to provide them with you know first aid kits, you know, so that so they can patch themselves up when they're wounded. And socks, there was socks was a big thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, it's crazy, you know, and 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 uh, and and uh, I, I actually said that you know the the disadvantage to providing them is some people think that you know that that that, uh, that these weapons can be provocative, but it's actually provocative not to give Ukraine defensive capabilities because because Putin is determined to reestablish Russian influence over the former territories of the of the Soviet Union, and he will continue in his effort to do that until he he, he hits stiff resistance, right? Can no longer go and any further. And, and so he made the president made the right decision in 2017 to, and thank God he did, you know, because they, they were able to train on and integrate javelins, which are the, the anti-tank weapons been. So one of the, one of the anti-tank weapons been so effective against, uh, against Russian tanks. And, but, but uh, this whole idea, you know, that, that we don't want to upset Putin. We actually, it's like we green lighted the, the, the invasion, Jonah. I mean, I, I can't believe 
how often I heard these statements from the administration. Okay, here's what we're not going to do. And we're not going to do this either. And we're not going to do that. Hey, just stop talking about what you're not going to do. Create some ambiguity in Putin's mind. And of course, now in retrospect, as we're racing to get uh, more weapons to Ukraine, we didn't do enough, hard power-wise. I mean, Putin is not afraid of Secretary Blinken's relentless diplomacy. He's just not afraid of that. You know, and, and Or even the threat of sanctions, because he had in mind the very weak sanctions after 2014. And I think you're exactly right to, to draw a line between the unenforced red line in Syria in 2013 uh, 2014 and the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, right on the eve, by the way, uh, uh, of the of the uh, Winter Olympics in Sochi. And I think there's also a direct line between our surrender to a terrorist organization in Afghanistan, our disastrous withdrawal there last last July August, and the renewed invasion of Ukraine. Remember, you know, Putin published that essay that that six thousand word essay that Ukraine's not even a thing, right? And and uh, and doesn't deserve to exist as an independent country, uh, right as we were, were executing that withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yeah, I want to get to Afghanistan in, in a little bit, but um, just to stay on Putin for a second. So my colleague, Klon Kitchen, who, was a, who worked for a three-letter agency or two, um, is, um, he makes the point, which I think is a good one, is that given how just utterly uh, embarrassed and humiliated the Russian military has been so far. Um, Putin needs to remind the world or get a or, or renew his reputation for being scary, right? If if a a Putin that is not seen as a major world military power, um, there's no need. You know, it, it negates who Putin is in his own mind. Never mind the rationale for his leadership. If if the if the Russian military is has been downgraded, you know, not quite to paper tiger. They got a lot of stuff, but um, it is no longer seen as a near peer of mm -hmm. you know the U.S. and China kind of thing. Um, how does he? First of all, do you think that's right that Putin needs to, you know, just as a mob boss needs to remind the street that he has the ability to enact his will and exert violence and vengeance. Putin needs that ability. And how does he do that? You know, that's that's my concern about the wild card for Putin is is his need to restore his street rep, as it were. Well, I mean, you're raising a good point. And you're, this is what I hope that leaders are, are thinking about is well, what's happening. What's he what is he going to do next? And it's important, I think, to, to understanding the present depends on I think uh, understanding how recent history you know produced the present. And if you just look at the pattern of his actions since he took over in 2000, in the year 2000, uh, on New Year's Day, you know, he said, okay, here's my program. I'm going to restore Russia to national greatness. And then he began to act on it, right? He he poisoned the Ukrainian presidential candidate and permanently disfigured him in 2003, you know. And he's been he's been actively undermining Ukraine since then, including you know, obviously the, the the manipulated election in 2014, then the sparks of the the, uh, the the orange revolution and then and then you had the, you know, the um the invasion in 2014, but even beyond that, right? The massive cyber attacks beginning in 2007 against Estonia, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, and if you just consider what else he's been doing, right? He he's he's been enabling the serial episodes of mass murder and homicide, which is the Syrian civil war, created a refugee crisis, which is destabilizing not only countries in the region but Europe as well. And as the migrants and refugees came into Europe, what was he doing? He was supporting nativist far-right parties, right, to, to polarize European society. 
He's weaponized migrants on the Polish border, right? He, he, uh, they, they, they advertised in, in Iraq, hey, you know, come to, you know, come, come to Germany, come to Poland, right? And they flew them into Belarus. He, he's occupied Belarus he, he, uh, as, as a precursor to the renewed offensive in, in Ukraine. He's stoking um, Serbian nationalism in the Balkan states. He's continued to threaten the, the Baltics, although I think the L- Lithuanian army uh, could march on St. Petersburg now based on how much he's committed down in, 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 uh, in Ukraine. So what does he fall back? What does he, what does he have left, right? Well, we know the military can still rubble cities. They can still commit mass murder by bombarding residential areas. And so the Ukrainians will continue to pay uh, a horrible price uh, for Russia's brutality and unscrupulousness, um, lack of discrimination, and and uh, and and the you know, and, and the use of uh, proportionality. You know the juice and bellow um, principles and, and and ethical guidelines. But what what Putin does is, and I describe this in Battlegrounds, right? It's, he's, it's his Putin's playbook is the four D's: disrupt. Right, disrupt by the threat of force, the use of force, disrupt with massive cyber attacks, uh, d- disrupt with cyber-enabled information warfare, disrupt by uh, by the use of his international criminal syndicate uh, that he uses. Uh, some of these these uh, these mercenary comp- uh, companies, for for example, like Prigozhin's, uh, which is operating in, in other from West Africa to Eastern Libya uh, and, and into into Syria. That's the Wagner Group. This is the Wagner group. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the group that, you know, that attacked our forces in Syria, right? We killed, we killed uh, over 300 of them. This is in February of 2018. And the Russians denied, you know, that there were even any casualties. Jonah, this this is why I think what happens when these 15,000 killed in action, I think is the best estimate right now. It's, it's it's unclear. And, and probably about 40,000 wounded when they get back to Russia, is this still a special military operation? You know, the, the disparity between so this is what so he he disrupts and then he uses disinformation right that's the second d disinformation right that, that he's denazifying right denazifying right. ukraine right that that uh you know that, that that he's protecting russian speakers hey what you guess what you know the president of ukraine is a jew and a russian speaker right so how's that playing out and then you saw what this with this troll uh, their for, their foreign minister Lavrov said the other day, you know, trying to say that that Hitler was, you know, w- w- had Jewish background. I mean, right. these people are delusional, right? So, so it's disinform. The third D is denial, and and I, I call this in the book implausible deniability, right? Oh, I didn't shoot down that airliner over Ukraine. Oh, I didn't poison this guy, you know, Navalny or Skripal in. In, in Europe, I, I didn't kill my 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 political opponent. I'm thinking of Nepsov, you know, when he was killed on the bridge right outside the Kremlin. So it's it's deniable de- deniability, and then then it's dependence, create dependencies on the international criminal enterprise where he's propping up certain governments. You know, in in Mali, you know, for example, uh, create dependence through through uh, through hydrocarbon exports, like he has with uh, with Germany and and others. So. So I think those are, he's going to go back to the four D's, and and uh, and and I think that's his playbook. But we can we can parry that playbook, is, and and we can uh, I think we're, if we're smart about it, and we make some long term adjustments to weaken him, to weaken his ability uh, to 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 uh, you know, to conduct those four D's, and and we're seeing the beginning of this. You know, I, I mean, it, why is that, hasn't there been a major cyber attack so far, John, or or multiple cyber attacks? Mm-hmm. I think it's because we're pretty good, actually. I, I don't know. I have no access to classify, but I think 
I think we're doing a pretty darn good job. I think actually the Ukrainians are pretty capable uh, in this area as well, and so are, so are some others internationally. Then, then you know, how come you know he hasn't you know he hasn't been able uh, to to really get traction more broadly with disinformation? I think it has a lot to do with you know with the administration who should get credit for declassifying some intelligence, pulling the curtain back on what Russia is doing. You know, when when Secretary Blinken read out in front of the UN, hey, here's what Putin's going to do. Okay, it, then then it, it it made it more difficult for him to deny this, to made it more difficult for him to show this as a war against NATO aggression, right? Which right. was the the narrative. Uh, and and then Putin, you know, he's we're ta- we're taking slowly away his his ability to create dependence on hydrocarbon exports, and you see Europe debating this now, right? And I think you'll see a decision in the next week or so to end. Uh, Russian imports to Germany uh, by the by the summer, which I think is a really important step. There are other steps that have to be taken to make this kind of a full embargo. Because what re- you really want to do is you want you want to prevent Putin from using the ATM of his of his exports to to continue to fund his war making machine. So across the four Ds, I think we're doing much better than we have in the past. I've asked a bunch of different people some version of this question, and I always get different answers. So, you know, people talk about how it's a new Cold War. It's like the old Cold War. Some people say that Russia is like the Russian Empire. Some people say it's like the Soviet Union. Some some people say it's a mix of the two. Regardless, like Russian behavior seems intuitively to be recognizable to people who spent any time studying the 20th century, you know, I mean, from sort of the George Kennan kind of argument about, you know, vital interests that go back to the 19th century, warm water ports, whatever. I mean, you can, Putin speaks right. in that language kind of thing. China's something different, right? I mean, the, it's when we, when we, when we had the, the real cold war, the Soviet union played a role with Western intellectuals, with certain artsy types, um, where it was seen as an idealistic sort of entity that played on um, hopes and aspirations, utopianism, all the useful idiot communists and all that kind of thing. But its model was not very competitive to us in terms of economics and, and that kind of thing. China is very different, right? China actually has an economic model that is competitive with us. And the sort of the best analogy I can come up with is it's sort of like Germany under the Kaiser is looking for its place in the sun, trying to a huge industrial power that feels like it was late to arrive as a world power and wants its moment. Is there a better historical analogy for how we should understand what China, where China is today and its relationship with, well, us and the, and the, the global order? Yeah, I, I think I think historical analogies can help, but they can't tell us how to go about it, right? We have to we have to use history, I think, to to help us ask the right questions. And John, I think you're asking all the right questions already. You know, what is you know what what, what are the elements of continuity with Cold War One and whatever you want to call this, whether you want to call it Cold War Two or not? Mm-hmm. I think there are some elements of continuity, and that is that that we're dealing with a a a uh, you know a revanchist power that wants to dominate the Eurasian landmass, right? And this is really what what uh, the Soviet Union wanted to do during during the Cold War to undermine the West to extend its control um, further not, not only across Europe but but globally and this is what China wants to do China is uh, trying to create exclusionary areas of primacy across the Indo-Pacific region and then to challenge 
the United States and the free world globally so it can rewrite the rules you know, of international security and economic discourse and in its own favor. Uh, and and uh, and to and it's it's I think the the other the other aspect of this that is similar is that I think we undervalue the degree to which ideology drives and constrains the Chinese Communist Party and mm-hmm. and we've undervalued that for for many years I mean especially after the end of the Cold War when we thought we were at the end of history right that that an arc of history had guaranteed the primacy of our free and open societies over closed authoritarian systems and 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 uh, I think the corollary to that which was you know, great power competition was a relic of, of the past. Well, it's it's coming back with a vengeance. And really, I think what we, we need to frame this competition is, is not really competition between Washington and Beijing, but a competition between sovereignty and servitude, because China is trying to create servile relationships with countries so it can it can dictate the terms, can dictate the terms of 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 um international uh, commerce and uh, across the South China Sea, for example, where, where it's engaged in the largest land grab, so to speak, in history. This is the part of the ocean through which one third of the world's surface trade flows. Uh, it's trying to rewrite the rules within international organizations by sub- subverting them. This is, the, of course, the World Health Organization, but the Human Rights Council as well. The, I mean, the, the International Civil Aviation Organization even. But they're trying to, to, to push their own agenda in every international organization. Uh, they're also trying to to create these servile relationships economically with the, the One Belt, One ro- Road program and the debt traps that they set for countries and their use of uh, of corrupt governments to try to, to get uh, to, to get do- dominant influence uh, over, over certain strategic uh, countries. Uh, and, and they use economic coercion uh, to, to, uh, to cow uh, to cow countries that that stand up to them. Australia is a great example. Lithuania is the most recent example. Right. So I, I think we have we have to ask the question: What is the nature of this competition? This competition is certainly military. We have to have a military capability to deter them, like we needed a military capability to deter the the Soviet Union. But it, this is more economic, as you mentioned, and our economies are intertwined to a degree that was not the case during the Cold War with the, with the Soviet Union. And so what do we need to do, Jonah? I think we need to start decoupling on our own terms. I yeah. mean, if we don't do it, if, com- if companies don't start this now, if financial institutions don't start this now, they're going to have their capital and investment stranded in China because I don't see Xi Jinping backing off of his revanchist, revisionist agenda, right? His aggressive agenda. I mean, he's, he's actually, if you just listen to what he says, he wants to decouple on his own terms. By creating a dual circulation economy in which he fosters dependence on China for renewable sources of energy and all the upstream components for it, for batteries, for you know, uh, fill fill in the blank, anything, and then and and ins- while insulating himself by getting a lock on supply chains, insulating himself from any economic sanctions, and by creating a digital yuan and an alternative to the dollar as the reserve currency. I don't think he's going to succeed in this, but he's trying to do that right. to insulate himself from financial sanctions as well. So let's just pay attention to what he's doing and what he's saying his agenda is. And by the way, Jonah, I think he's preparing China for war and 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 uh, and the people for war. If you look at his most recent speeches where he's extolling the Chinese performance during the war against American aggression, which is what they call the Korean War, he's talked about how brilliant Mao Zedong was. In, in delivering one blow to prevent hundreds, it's an argument for a preemptive war. And the target for this preemptive war 
is Taiwan. And it's coming, Jonah. He's telling us it's coming, but we're not listening. And we're still, we're still, we're still investing in China to a crazy amount. $114 billion of U.S. venture capital went into Chinese companies. Much of that money is being used to develop weapons to kill our grandchildren. I mean, it's, it just makes no damn sense. And then, and then the dumb money that's going in, you know, the index fund money and so forth, is the scaffolding that's holding up their, their, their statist economic model, which they're weaponizing against us. So I guess the question is, you know, I think it's a Cold War too. I think we should call it that. But be very sensitive to the point that you made in, in, in posing the question that it's not the same kind of competition. I think the stakes are, are just as high. Uh, but what we do from an economic perspective, a financial perspective, I think is is much more important than it was during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Yeah, I am as much as I love the international or at least the Western response to uh, the invasion of Ukraine. I am very skeptical that we would get anything like the kind of sanctions that we've seen against Russia against China. Because part of the reason why people agreed to do these sanctions against Russia is because it was fairly easy by comparison. And the idea that we would get the same kind of response about China seems unlikely to me. But um, so what? Hey, Joan, if I could just make one point on that. Yeah. You know, of course, the companies are already compromising their integrity, integrity, right? I mean, how is genocide in Xinjiang? How's that not an ESG issue, right? right. An environmental social governance issue. And look at all the companies that have buckled. I mean, from the from you know Marriott to the NBA to H and M to Nike. I mean, the list just goes on and on of companies that have supplicated to the Chinese Communist Party, who have apologized for the most egregious actions, essentially, so they can they they, they can get access to the Chinese market uh, or or get access to Chinese investment or 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 uh, uh, or cheap manufacturing there. This is the case with Apple, for example. So. I, I just think uh, it's it's been discussed. We, so we've helped them build the great firewall that prevents right. the Chinese people from accessing any source of information that doesn't come directly from the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, some companies, U.S. companies, have done that, and uh, and it's it's been e- egregious. And I think it's but you know what's encouraging to me, Joan. I don't know what you think about this. I'd love to hear what you think about this. I think what surprised me a little bit about the Russian sanctions is how many international companies, U.S. companies, and others left voluntarily. Yeah. And left money on the table voluntarily yeah. uh, beyond the sanctions. It's time to do that in China. I mean, it's it's time to do it. And, and of course, we're vulnerable uh, because we don't have access to rare earths that that, you know, that go into batteries, that go into electric cars, that go into solar panels, that go into into wind turbines and everything else that uh, there's there's a growing demand for. But hey, it's time to get after it with I, I think economic statecraft or you know that 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 that, that uh, reduces these vulnerabilities. Yeah, I mean my my um. I've, I've been banging my spoon in my high chair about some of this stuff about China for, for 20 years. And so far as like, you know, the Georgia boycotts that we saw over its, you know, various laws a few years ago, um, China actually has Jim Crow. If Jim Crow means something, it means the segre- discre- systematic segregation and discrimination against specific racial subgroups and yeah. if you're Anybody not, han, that's not han any, yeah. any non-han population absolutely they have real han supremacy in china yeah. in terms of access to jobs access to passports access to higher education um access to cities and markets and 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 apartments and housing and we don't talk about any of it in the united states when it's like it what, what we talk about metaphorically here in the united states and new jim crow which doesn't actually exist it exists literally in China, and 
but no one seems to really care because they seem to they sort of have this racist view that that the Chinese well that's just their culture is oppression and tyranny you know and it's like well right, it's not right, Taiwan's yeah. you know um, but I, I do want to ask you know so uh, this is another thing I've been sort of fascinated of late um, Russia lies like through its teeth about its COVID numbers right right. The Economist has done some great stuff just doing data analysis on and about. Mm-hmm. Statistically, it's impossible. On, on excess deaths and everything. Right. right? Exactly. And, yep. and I think China lies less. At least that's my understanding. Because if, 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 if they were going to lie, we wouldn't see like the zero COVID stuff. But what unites both countries is they seem to have a real fear of the illegitimacy that losing huge numbers of their own citizens to this disease would would show right i mean in america it, i'm not saying it speaks well of us but we've lost an, a million people to covid and right. but because we have agency and we have yeah. the ability to make choices for ourselves it's not a scandal necessarily a government but in china you have like you have, right now you have the zero covid policy which they're not going to let go of um and it's almost as if they think it would reflect so horribly on their own management and their own sort of competence that they have to maintain this fiction that they've got a complete control on these things. I get what I'm getting to is, is I'm still skeptical about the long-term prospects for China. I agree that when that the, the sort of neoliberal, you know, if they become capitalists, they become democracy thing has not panned out, but I always want to add a yet um, because totalitarian regimes are brittle. They're strong, like marble, but they're not flexible. And I'm just wondering, do you think that th- that this kind of, whether it's the Russian regime or the Chinese regime, do you think this kind of authoritar- authoritarianism in a modern information age is sustainable in the long run? Yeah, I don't think so, Jonah. And this is, I, I really love that observation that totalitarian regimes are brittle, right? They appear strong from, from the outside. But but what you're pointing out with China is like the, I think the Chinese Communist Party is driven principally by fear, right? Fear of losing its exclusive grip on power. And what people who are apologists for the party will tell you is, oh, you know, that's that's the Chinese people, they like the, the Chinese Communist Party. I, I really don't believe that any people are culturally predisposed toward not wanting a say in how they're governed. And this is what this is what the Chi- the Chinese uh, Communist Party fears the most is the people will demand a say. You know, how about 1989 and the Tian- Tiananmen Square massacre, which was you know, brutally put down by the party, and then the party has since then done everything they could to extend and tighten its exclusive grip on on power. Uh, Xi Jinping came in as a strong man because the party needed reform. It was it was hopelessly corrupt. It still is, uh, but what he's put in place is, is really a system. That designed to maintain power through the establishment of a technologically enabled Orwellian police state. Can that continue to exist? Can it continue? Can the, can the economy continue to succeed? I think you're starting to see it crumble now, Joan. I mean, this has been predicted for years, okay? But and I'm not an economist. Washed up generals shouldn't talk about economics. <laughs> there are enough of them here at Hoover, you know, without me talking about economics. Enough, really. I mean, accomplished and and uh, and talented and and uh, and smart economists here at, at Hoover. But, you know, I think what we saw in the real estate sector is indicative. And then also just the party's crackdown on the tech sector. Right? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think I think Xi Jinping looked at what 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 Jack uh, Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg did to Donald Trump. And he said, hey, man, you know, Jack Ma's not going to do that to me. 
<laughs> he, he put him in timeout, and then he cracked down on the on the tech sector, uh, and and he's cracked down on the on the tutoring and the education sector. Healthcare, I think, is is the next really, and um and, and they're making really bad economic decisions in their race to exceed us. Xi Jinping gave gave a speech last week in which he told he told the Politburo, "We need to accelerate our economic growth so we can surpass the United States." I mean, almost exactly those words. But in his race to surpass us, he's creating, I think, a, a great deal of fragility in his own economic system. And, and, uh, and, and when it comes down, I think it's going to come down hard. And, and, and for those who keep investing in China, you're going to lose your money. I mean, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're, they're already losing it now because of what's happening in the Chinese stock market. Um, but but it, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's coming. And, and I think we continue to undervalue geostrategic risk. I mean, Joe, I remember, at, you know, I mean, since last summer, right, last fall, as Russia's massing all these troops around Ukraine, how many people are saying, oh, yeah, it's not going to happen? I mean, what do you mean it's not going to happen? I mean, he, he told you he's going to do it, This he being Xi Jinping. He's massing the troops. It's clear they're prepared for it. But people were in denial about it. I think hopefully it's been enough of a wake-up call that we start doing what we should have done. As you said, you know, you've been talking about this for 20 years. But we need to start doing now what we should have been doing 20 years ago. And then... But, you know, people say now to John, they'll say, well, well, that'll take so long and it's going to be really hard. Well, you know, it'll take even longer if we never start doing it. Right. It's sort of like the argument you always get about oil. It's like whenever we have an oil crisis, oil price crisis, they'll say, well, even if we started drilling today, it wouldn't solve it for a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. But if we had started drilling 25 years ago, it would do wonders today, you know. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. So how, you know, right now, how do you feel, how confident are you? How to put this? If China goes after Taiwan, which we, I think we both agree is a matter of of when, not if. Um, but let's say, probably it probably won't for all sorts of reasons, including the fact it's not going to want to do it while the West is really in this moment of holding hands, kumbaya about Ukraine. Um, it would probably want things to calm down a little bit. But let's say it goes in in twenty twenty five. How? How do you think the Taiwanese would hold off, would hold up against that kind of aggression? And do you think that we would we would join in and come to Taiwan's defense? You know, I, I think Taiwan would hold up pretty well. The big the question I have is, I don't really, I don't have a good, uh, a good um, understanding of Taiwanese will, right? Mm -hmm. And what you're seeing is, is, you're seeing the Ukrainians fight so courageously, right? It was so much determination, and that that's that's a factor that. <laughs> that's more important than just numbers of like missiles yeah. and tanks and planes. So, so I, I think that under Tsai Ing-wen and her government, they're doing everything they can to strengthen their military. I think you've seen the the the, the people, the Taiwanese people, demonstrate their will to 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 keep their freedom, to to not be subjugated uh, to the Chinese Communist Party in the last election, which is the first time you know, there was a majority, um, you know, clear majority in their in their parliament. Um, in the party who who's you know taking a strong stance on on maintaining uh, their freedom uh, for, uh, and and uh, defending Taiwan, so I guess the will is is the one factor. But I think from a military perspective, I think they could defeat an invasion uh, once they get some of the new capabilities. That sadly, some of them won't be delivered till like twenty twenty six. So the period of maximum danger, I think, is is between the Chinese Communist Party Congress at the end of this year, October November this year. 
the 20th Congress, at where Xi Jinping is going to be probably designated as chairman for life of, of, right. the, of the party. Uh, and then and then 2025, 2026, when some of these new defense capabilities come online for the Taiwanese, but also for the Japanese self-defense forces. Well, specifically, what do those look like? I mean, what kind of doodads are we talking about? Those are those are tiered and layered air defense. Uh-huh. Uh, these are shortest ship missiles. Uh, this is uh, these are, are smart mines, uh, unmanned aerial systems, uh, as well as some other you know traditional capabilities like uh, like tanks and and artillery and uh, and fighter aircraft. But it's really those asymmetric capabilities, including long-range fires, that I think uh, could could are, are particularly important for for Taiwanese defense. But it's also worth pointing out, Jonah. I mean, it's not an easy military problem to subjugate Taiwan from the Chinese mainland. I mean, Taiwan is the size of Maryland. It's extremely mountainous on the west side. The population is concentrated in large cities on the on the on the west coast. Uh, there are mud flats on the west coast, which mean there are only a couple of really good of good suitable landing sites. The the you know the strait at some one of uh, some of its narrowest points are really only like, it's still 150 miles across, and then it's stormy uh, for all but like the late spring and, and early fall, and and so there there are some real natural advantages that, that accrue to the to the Taiwanese. So what is China going to do? China's going to continue to build up its its power, and it's going to try to continue to subvert Taiwanese will. I think what Xi Jinping wants more than anything, you know, would love is annexation by invitation right. to, to subvert Taiwanese will, to use economic coercion, to buy off elites, to use to use various forms of, of corruption. And in the book, I, I call you know, the China, China strategy, you know, talked about Russia's four D's, but I talk about uh, China's three C's, which is co-option, coercion and concealment. Co-opt, right, with uh, with the lure of, of access to the Chinese market, to Chinese invest with Chinese investment, uh, you know, co-opt with you know board seats for you know for retired Taiwanese military officials and so forth, and uh, and then and then once you're in to coerce you right to use economic coercion like, like they have with Australia, with Lithuania, with with uh, with South Korea uh, over the Thad missile system, uh, and then and then uh, and then conceal. Uh, the, the strategy is kind of just normal business practices, right? Oh, this is this is just normal. So I think that's what he'll try. Um, and what you could see, I think, a- after after the Communist Chinese Communist Party Congress is the switch from co-option to coercion, and that coercion could then go up the ladder of you know maybe trying to shut down satellite access, maybe a blockade, maybe maybe trying to shut down their telecom capabilities, uh, maybe interdicting ships that are carrying. Goods and and weapons to Taiwan, and of course, this is consequential to all of us because so many of uh, of se- the semiconductors in the world are manufactured in Taiwan, and of course, semiconductors go into everything, you know, right. and and um, everything that's important to to driving the, the global economy. So, um, I, I think we're in for a rough ride after the end of this year uh, on Taiwan. Uh, so there ought to be a race going on, right? Hey, what are all the things we should have helped Ukraine develop in terms of defensive capabilities uh, that may have prevented this war. Well, let's do that for Taiwan now, you know, yeah. with, with a sense of urgency, saying that we can't deliver artillery systems to them till 2026. I mean, hey, we're, you know, you know, we're, we're, I, let's, let's start being Americans instead of Americans, you know, <laughs> and, like, and just get it done, you know, just get it done. Yeah, no, we could use a little more Leslie Groves in a lot of our <laughs> stuff these days. Given how much we're sending, we need to send to Ukraine, how much you think we should be sending to Taiwan, given the, the growing threats, what what do you think the defense budget should look like? 
Okay, so I think Taiwan can buy their own defense capabilities. We can uh-huh. provide some, but I, I think you know countries have to defend themselves. But for us, I think our defense budget has to increase dramatically. You know, we are spending an all-time low level on defense uh, by per percentage of GDP uh, of about like three point two percent. I think it is now. You know, at the at the height of the Cold War, it was you know it was like eleven percent. You know, yeah. and uh, and the norm. Uh, is, is about four percent, you know, and and uh, I think our defense budget is based on some flawed assumptions. You know, the flawed assumption that we can just deal with one crisis potentially at a time, and then the assumption uh, that we can deter conflict with with you know, existing capabilities and without uh, addressing the bow wave of deferred modernization associated with the anemic uh, budgets during the the Obama years, uh, and then also uh, the the you know, the Budget Control Act, which did not allow predictable long-term budgeting for the Department of Defense, which then required the Department of Defense to keep on legacy systems, old systems that are more expensive to maintain. I mean, there's a whole cycle, Jonah, that we we haven't broken out of. And then also the capacity, the size of our force. We're not big enough, I think, to to deter conflict. And and uh and and we've traded off the size of the force over time under the assumption that technology would enable a smaller force to have a bigger impact over a wider area. Hey, well, guess what? China and Russia, they looked at, at our capabilities and they they developed asymmetric capabilities to try to take apart our differential advantage. And that's that's counter-satellite capabilities. It's offensive cyber capabilities. It's electromagnetic warfare. Uh, it's cheap uh, drones undersea as well as, as, uh, as uh, unmanned uh, aerial systems. And it's just a range of capabilities that that break apart our ability to conduct joint operations, which is to integrate operations across the the land, uh, aerospace, uh, maritime, and cyber domains. Switching gears again, um, um, obviously you have the, the new book, but uh, your first book was uh, Dereliction of Duty, and part of your argument was that the senior military leadership just fell down on the job, not giving the political leadership the kind of honest, mature, sober analysis. It, 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 whether it deserved or not, it needed. With, with that sort of framework in mind, did the military leadership fail the country in the advice it gave or did not give to Joe Biden about getting out of Afghanistan? Yeah. Yeah, Jordan, I, I don't know yet. I mean, we probably won't know for years, you know, until documents are declassified and, you can, you can, you can, uh, we can see, right. What, what did, you know, what did general Mark Milley tell, you know, t- tell the president because Mark Milley is by, by law, the principal military advisor, right. To the secretary of defense and the, and, and the president and should have direct access to the president. What did the combatant commanders tell him? This is the central command commander, you know, who, who commanded the forces that were in Afghanistan. You know, what did, what did my friend Scott Miller, the commander in Afghanistan tell him? We, we just don't know, right. Because they've been professional. They they know that their job is to provide advice, not to make policy decisions. So what was their best advice? That's what they owe the president is their best advice. But as I write about in Dereliction of Duty, uh, Lyndon Johnson, he didn't want best military advice. Right. right? He wanted the advice he wanted to hear. And and uh, and uh, in the book, I tell the story about this meeting in in the uh, in the Oval Office, and he has all the chiefs there. This, these are the heads of the services and the, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and. And, uh, and, you know, and he said, Hey, uh, I'm the, co- I'm, I'm like a coach I used to know, and you're my team. You're all Johnson men. 
And what, and, and he was trying to tell them, I want you to be on the team with me. I want you to tell, I want you to give me the advice on Vietnam that I want to hear. And this was in particular that the strategy of graduated pressure, right? That just doing a little bit more military, a little bit more military would work because what Johnson didn't want to do, he didn't want to make a decision on Vietnam. He wanted to pursue getting elected in his own right in 64. And then he wanted the great society legislation in 65. And he viewed Vietnam principally as a danger to those goals. So he structured the relationship to get the advice he wanted from them. And, uh, and, and, you know, they didn't give him the advice he wanted in this meeting. Uh, Earl Wheeler said, Hey, um, I mean, nothing less than a hundred thousand troops are, are, are going to do any good in, 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 in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then Harold K. Johnson, chief staff of the army gave him the same advice. Well, he didn't want to hear that. He wanted to send just a small number of troops over there. So he said, you know, let me tell you a story. You know, I, I want you to all pretend you're businessmen. Your businessmen down in Johnson City, Texas, and you need a loan to keep your business afloat. And you go to the bank, and, and, and Secretary uh, Robert McNamara sit next to him, and it's Mr. McNamara's bank. And Mr. McNamara tells you, you go in for a loan, one hundred thousand dollars. Mr. McNamara tells you, I, you know, you can't have one hundred thousand dollars, but I can give you a loan of twenty thousand. He said, "What do you do? Do you let your business go under, or do you take the twenty thousand and do the best you can with with, with what you got?" And then he turned to the commandant of the Marine Corps who wanted a bigger Marine Corps and was told, hey, if you support me, if you support Johnson, you're, you're going to get a third Marine division. And so so that then the, the commandant of the Marine Corps said, yeah, I think 20,000 Marines can do a hell of a lot of good in, v- in Vietnam. Right? So, <laughs> so he got he structured a relationship to get the advice he wanted. right? Yeah. And of course, that led to a disaster. We went to war in Vietnam without a strategy. Actually, we went to war with a strategy that the chiefs had all predicted would fail. They did two war games in 1964 that ended... They imagined an ending at these war games in 1968 with 500,000 troops in Vietnam, no prospect for success, and the American people demanding an end of the war. Hey, you know, Jonah, you don't get more accurate than that, right? (laughs) You know, so some things are black swans, you know, they just kind of happen to anticipate. And some things are pink flamingos, Jonah. You know, they're sitting right in front of you and people don't want to acknowledge them. Well, I mean, it's it's funny you bring it up because it kind of brings it back to Ukraine a little bit. You know, Putin clearly thought. You know, I give you all this money to bribe these guys. You told me they're bribed. Turned out they weren't bribed or they weren't going to follow through on it. Told them it could be a surgical strike, you know, special military operation, decapitate, you know, sort of like Bill Murray and Stripes. You know, we'll load up the RV, go out for the weekend. We'll be back. No big deal. And so, I mean, it's an interesting point that buying the advice that you want to hear isn't just a problem for totalitarian or authoritarian people. It's it's the problem for political leaders across the board, right? I mean, it just, yeah, it's just, right, it's the nature of the right. beast. And, and, and you know, I, t- I tell the story in Battlegrounds in the last chapter about how kind of, how surreal it felt to walk into McGeorge Bundy's office, right? I criticized him in dereliction of duty. He was the national security advisor. And realized, hey, hey, now I'm in charge of the process that I criticize from a historical perspective. <laughs> so I resolved to at least not make the same mistakes. And hey, one of the things I resolved to do was never shy away from telling the president what he didn't want to hear. Yeah. Now that might be, that might be one of the reasons why, you know, yeah, I had, I, had a, I had a particular, I had a shelf life there in the Trump administration, but you know, it, it would have been a disservice to, to Donald Trump to tell him what he wanted to hear, right? And 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 what I wrote about in Dereliction of Duty is, is hey, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I don't mean to be plugging these books; they are page That's turners, right. though. That's I'll right. just tell your listeners. <laughs> but the uh, but in, 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 in Dereliction of Duty, what I, what I found is that that many of the president's advisors decided that to preserve their influence with Lyndon Johnson. They had to tell Lyndon Johnson what he wanted to hear, but of course that begs the question: Hey, what hell? What the hell good is your advice anyway? If you're just telling him what, what what he wants to hear, 
So I, I think it's important to, to be obviously honest with the president, with, with any president, and 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 to recognize what your job is. Like a national security advisor, you're the only person in the foreign policy establishment who has the president as his or her only client. And 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 you do your client a disservice if you try to make it easy on them, right? Because it's a hard job that requires hard decisions. So I mean, I know that you you're not going to divulge private communications between you and and the president and all of that. But in in broader brushstrokes, when you say you would be doing a disservice if you told him what he wanted to hear, can you give me a sense of like what Donald Trump wanted to hear? And like, was it a <laughs> Did he have a con- coherent worldview about foreign policy, or is it a series of yeah. personal relationships and and a little bit of a sort of neo isolationist thing? Is that is that the gist of it, or is there more to it? Well, I mean, he he was pretty clear, like on the campaign trail in 2016. I remember, I came in quite unexpectedly, right, as as his second of many national security advisors, right, yeah. <laughs> in, uh, in February of 2000. And, and you guys uh, were like drummers in Spinal Tap, yeah, at 17, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Hey man, I, I mean, I I could break out a few Christopher Guest, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> analogies <laughs> across across that whole genre, which I love. But uh, but the, the uh, but you know, I I really you know, I I I think it, it certainly would have been a disservice to tell him what he you know what, what he wanted to hear, and and you know he in that first year, I'll tell you, of course, you know, I'm biased because I was there and mm-hmm. had, had part ownership of the foreign policy decisions. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a bad foreign policy decision it, it, from 2017 to 2018, right? I mean, think about the, these major shifts. The largest shift in U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, from 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 uh, really accommodating China right, to mm-hmm. to competition with China. You know, we we did put severe sanctions on Russia. We did provide defensive capabilities to Ukraine to deter conflict there. You know, we did continue the the European deterrence initiative, and 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 I think the calls even to you know, for, for burden sharing in NATO, actually strengthen NATO, right? And now, of course, I wasn't there when the Helsinki thing happened, thank God. You mm-hmm. know, but but so, I mean, I, but I'm just talking about that one year. The South Asia strategy on Afghanistan with a fundamental different approach to Pakistan to stop talking about our withdrawal timelines and then talk to a, a terrorist enemy thinking we're going to get anything good out of that, you know, to actually redesignate the Taliban as, a, as an enemy or, organization to provide the kind of capabilities the Afghan for. I mean, th- I think that was that was that was solid and the best we could get the maximum pressure on on, on North Korea you know the shift on, on the Iran strategy and and sanctioning uh Iran and 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 uh and restoring kind of the the effort to isolate them from the international economy until they stopped their proxy war against us and 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 stopped uh the, you know the the um, you know the development of of these destabilizing weapons and so forth and and then, and then the Syria, the Syria strategy that was announced in January of 2018, and I mean, I think it was the best you could get. I mean, so I, I could go on the shift on 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 Venezuela, on Cuba. I mean, the re- complete reversal of the Obama administration Cuba policy, I think, was was overdue. So we got a hell of a lot done, like in 13 months. And I think the way we got it done was by giving him options, you know. And 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 this is one of the things I read about at the end of Battlegrounds too, and what I read, wrote about in Dereliction Duty. Hey, it is a disservice to take one shiny course of action to the elected president and say, hey, everybody agrees is what you should do. Just sign here, right? Because none of us, right, not, not who are on the principles committee of the National Security Council, that's his cabinet. This is the, the committee that's that's run by the National Security Advisor. N- none of us were elected 
You know, so the the guy who got elected should get a say in, in what in what his or her policy is. A guy or gal who gets elected. So so uh, so I I, uh, I think that works with Donald Trump because you know or any president uh, it works with with it works with President Trump particularly because you know he's reflexively contrarian. So I mean it's 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 very likely that if you were to bring him like one course of action, he would he would do the opposite just for the hell of it. You know, so so I think it was you know on the South Asia strategy, which he was predisposed as we saw later because he reversed it. To withdraw from Afghanistan to prioritize withdrawing, um, you know, we we showed we showed him that option up front, and then what we showed him in terms of the consequences is exactly what we we saw happen uh, when we did when when we when the withdrawal occurred under the Biden administration. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, obviously we don't have time to get too deep in the weeds in this, but I mean, I, I would make the case that particularly as the administration went on. A lot of the best things that came out of the Trump administration were the result of sort of grownups like you and some others managing up. Um, and um, that you look, if you look at, say, the you're absolutely right, the Trump administration and the media gets this wrong all of the time, had much more severe sanctions on Russia than the Obama administration did. And this idea that the Trump administration. I mean, like four times more. Yeah, no, so, I agree. So four I, I, times I absolutely more agree. In, but in, one, in one year, Compared to eight years, but if you go back and you look about how Trump then talked about them and said he sort of did it reluctantly or didn't realize how bad it was and call, you know, there's there's a lot of saving Trump from himself that goes on in the the Trump years that I I I don't want to lecture you about because you know that better than I do. I suspect. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, but this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Like, just know your role, right? And, And I think there are some people in an administration, like for like for me. When I came in, I said, "Okay, this is my last job in the army." I did the, the job on. I was still on active duty, right? And and uh, and by, that was kind of liberating. I, I was just gonna. I, I'm just gonna retire at the end of this, right? I mean, I, I'm not looking for another a four star job. I'm not looking for you know a position in the administration. I want. I don't want to be you know the <laughs> you know the ambassador to you know to to uh, you know to to a to a uh, you know a, a, in a in a cush job or anything. I didn't want any of that. I just wanted to do my duty, and then when I was done, I was done. And I, I was clear with the president about that too, but there are some people in administration that are not there to serve the elected president to help him decide or her decide the, their agenda. They're there actually to advance their own agenda, right? Whether it's on you know immigration or trade or, uh, or the Iran nuclear deal, whatever it is, they're not there to give the president options. They're there to manipulate decisions consistent with what they think is right. But again, you know, hey, nobody elected them. And so they're undermining the Constitution, right? They're not they're not accountable to the American people. The same thing with people who think it's their role to protect the country and the world from the president. Right? <laughs> That's not their role, you know. And and and, uh, and and of course, if the president would, were to ask anybody to, to do something illegal, right, or or something that was inconsistent with the Constitution and, and his Article Two authorities, we would, of course you, you can't do you shouldn't do it. You can't do it, right? But but if it's you know if it's if it's a decision that you just disagree with, well, I mean, if you don't want to be part of it, you can resign, right? Um, and but but you know, it's not your decision; it's the president's decision. And the checks that are on the president exist in the Congress under Article One, or in the judiciary, and then of course, ultimately, with the American people in, in the form of elections. Um, I, I promised uh, our mutual friend that I would get you out on time, and. We got two minutes left, but he also made me promise to ask you what you think the best war movie is. <laughs> Man, there's some there's some good there's some really good ones. I, I think I that, mean, Robert Duvall that, played you in Apocalypse Now. We know that, right? 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I think I, I like a bridge too far, you know, um, because it gets to some of the strategic decision-making mm-hmm. and it gets to what we were talking about, Jonah, how some people, they, they want to get the, they, they want to, they get the advice they want to hear. Right. Mm-hmm. And this was the case with operation market garden in which, uh, too many commanders ignored the intelligence because they had a nifty idea in mind. And, uh, and I think the movie really gets to that dynamic. There are a number of others to get to, you know, to, to uh, particular aspects of leadership or ethics in war. But, but if I, just to pick one, I mean, I think that's, that's one that, um, is accurate from a historical perspective, uh, and, and has an important theme associated with it. Yeah. It's funny. The one I quote the most over the last six years is uh, bridge of the river Kwai, because so many people I know have turned out to be sort of like Colonel Nicholson who get caught up sort of similarly in an idea right. that goes beyond their better judgment. And just too few of them have said, my God, what have I done and fallen on a dynamite plunger? But that's a different conversation. Um, spoiler alert. Sorry. Uh, Adrian McMaster, I hope I can have you back. Uh, cause there's lots of like military history nerdery. I would love to go over with you. Uh, but thank you very much for doing this. Hey, Jonah, it was a great, great time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, General McMaster has left the studio, and um, uh, you know, Guy uh, noted when the show ended that he had never heard someone talk more than me on one of my podcasts before. For which, of course, he'll be punished. But um, um, it was an interesting and spirited and lively conversation. Uh, let me know what you think about it. I did not realize how gregarious H.R. McMaster was, but it was it was fun to talk to him. He's a he's an animated. Um, committed, passionate dude. And um, thank you all for listening. By the time you uh, hear this, we'll have had another dispatch live out. And if you had been a member, you would have gotten a notification for it so that you could watch it. It should be really interesting. Today, again, is we're dealing with all the fallout from the uh, the Supreme Court leak. Um, not to mention, by tonight, there will be primary results. So maybe we'll do some rank punditry later in the week. And uh, thanks again to everybody who was concerned about how I was feeling. I am definitely on the mend. And um, and this Friday, we're going to do the, it's the first Friday of the month, so it's a Drive Time podcast. Um, if you hate the Drive Time podcast, you, you've been forewarned, um, so you don't have to listen to it. And if you love them, you have something to look forward to. And with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs>